everyone, and welcome back to Reflect Forward. I'm your host, Carrie Siggins, and I'm so happy that you're here today. I'm thrilled to have my guest, Whitney Johnson, on the show today. Whitney is the CEO of WLJ Advisors and is one of the 50 leading business thinkers in the world, named by Thinkers 50. She is an expert on helping high-growth organizations develop high-growth individuals. Whitney is an award-winning author and world-class keynote speaker, frequent lecturer for Harvard Business School's corporate learning, and executive coach and advisors to CEOs. She is a popular contributor to the Harvard Business Review, has 1.7 million followers on LinkedIn, where she was selected a top voice in 2018, and her course on fundamentals of entrepreneurship has been viewed more than a million times. She is also an innovation and disruption theorist. In fact, that's how I met her. She did a course for my YPO chapter earlier this year on how to disrupt yourself. And I knew she had to come on the podcast because it really resonated with me. She talks about her theories on disruption in her best-selling book, Build an A-Team, Play to Their Strengths and Lead Them Up the Learning Curve, and the critically acclaimed Disrupt Yourself, Putting the Power of Disruptive Innovation to Work. In her book, she codifies her framework for helping develop high-growth individuals and organizations, what she calls the personal disruption and the S-curve of learning frameworks. Another interesting tidbit about Whitney is that she's the co-founder of the Disruptive Innovation Fund with Harvard Business School's Clayton Christensen, who I actually got to hear speak at a Colorado Innovation Network meeting several years ago. I think I was actually pregnant with my son, so that was probably back in 2012 when that happened. And it was a very interesting conversation on how to think about disruption, especially being a technology company. And we were going through some major changes then, so I took a lot away from that. So I really appreciated that she had worked with Christian before because uh, he was the, well, one of the godfathers, I would say, of disruptive innovation. One other thing about Whitney, and then I promise you I will let you meet her, is that she also hosts a weekly Disrupt Yourself podcast. She publishes a popular weekly newsletter. It's a very good newsletter, which you can find on her website, WhitneyJohnson.com. And she is married with two children and lives in Virginia. Okay, enough of me talking. I can't wait for you to meet Whitney. Hang tight, and I'll be right back with her. All right, everyone, welcome back. You heard all about Whitney Johnson in the pre-show, and I'm so excited to have you on the show today. Thank you for joining me, Whitney. Oh, Carrie, I'm delighted to be here. All right, so I enjoyed uh, the workshop that you put on for my chapter and YPO, YPO Colorado, on how to disrupt yourself. So can you tell us a bit about the S-curve of learning and your framework for disruption? Yeah, absolutely. All right, so some quick background. I'll start with the framework of disruption and I'll go to the framework of of the S-curve of learning. So disruptive innovation is a term that many people have heard. Um, It was a term coined by Clayton Christensen at the Harvard Business School to describe a silly little thing that takes over the world, like the the telephone did to the telegraph, like the automobile did to the horse and buggy, and more recently, Netflix did to Blockbuster. And so that's this whole framework. I invested with Clayton Christensen. We would buy and sell stocks on the basis of this framework. But while I was working with him, I had this big aha that this whole theory of disruption, it wasn't just about 
products and services and companies and countries, it was also about people. That people, you know, just we need to disrupt ourselves. And then a company doesn't actually disrupt, the people do. And personal disruption is you take all these ideas, make them meaningful to you. The one big difference with personal disruption is that you're Netflix and you're Blockbuster and you're the silly little thing and you take over the world because you are disrupting you. And so there are all sorts of ways that we can disrupt ourselves. There are the obvious ways of we change roles, we start a new job, we start a company. There are the less, um, there are the micro disruptions that we do every day where we offend someone and we decide that we're going to apologize. And then there are the really big ones that aren't quite so obvious, like when we disrupt our perception of ourselves, what we think is possible. So that's personal disruption. I have a seven point framework that allows you to be effective in disrupting yourself. Again, the idea being is if you want to disrupt as a company, you have to disrupt as an individual. That's personal disruption. Now, the S-curve of learning framework, that was my second big aha in working with Clayton. So first was disruption, not just about products, also about people. The second one was that this S-curve that we were using to help us figure out how quickly an innovation would be adopted. So this is popularized by Ian Rogers was something, you know, people would look, use it for innovations. They would look at how quickly a virus will spread like the pandemic. But I had this aha that you could use this S-curve as a model for how we grow. It could help us understand how you and I as individuals grow and develop. And so every time you start something new, you are at the base of that S. And that growth um, is happening, but it's going to feel like it's not happening. It feels very slow. You can be discouraged. Um, it can feel like a slog, but then that normalizes it. You're like, oh, I'm doing something new. I've never done this before. I've started a business. I've taken on a new project. Of course, I don't know what I'm doing. Of course, I'm overwhelmed. I'm at the launch point of the S. But then you put in the effort and you accelerate into competence and confidence. And this is the steep part of that curve where you feel like I know what I'm doing. I, I, my neurons are firing. It's exhilarating. I love being on the part of this curve this part of the curve. So you go from slow and now it's fast. And then you get to the top of the curve. You figured it out. You know what you're doing. It's like, you can predict it. It's, it's very reliable. The challenge when you're at the top of the curve is that you know what you're doing. And so you're no longer enjoying the feel good effects that come with learning. You start to get bored. And so you've gotten that top of that curve. You've gone from slow and then fast and then slow. And so what we're trying to do as human beings is understand this is what the cycle of growth looks like. And we want to learn and leap and repeat as frequently as possible because that's what growth and progress looks like. And when we get to the top of that curve, we disrupt ourselves and we start all over again. But it's really a way for us to think about what growth looks like because when we understand what it looks like, we can affect it. Yeah, I love that. So the example that I used in our workshop with you was uh, teaching myself ballet. And I've actually thought a lot about this since the workshop, because it seemed like a silly example, but it is such a good example of, of that S curve because I mean, my son watched me when I was first teaching myself and he's like, mom, you should not be doing ballet. And, you know, if I was doing it for, you know, money, obviously he would be right because it was terrible. But I will tell you going through that S curve and getting better and getting stronger and working my body in a different way. And then thinking a bit through the framework of disrupting myself has really helped open my eyes to 
how often you can do it and how powerful it can be if you do it with intentionality. Mm-hmm. And so I've been more determined to get to that top of the, of the S curve with ballet. Like I'm even going to go to ballet classes now that we can do that again, just to really prove that mastery can come when you do disruption with intentionality. Yeah. Oh, Carrie, I love that. And, and I love how you described this idea of when, because you understood this framework, it allowed you, or you were able to give yourself permission to be at that launch point. You said, of course, this is, of course, my son thinks I'm bad at it because I'm at the launch point. And so that gives you your, yourself permission to, to be there. And I, I just, and it, I agree. It is a great example of being on a new S curve. <laughs> Well, I've really applied it to, to thinking about leadership as well, because I am a disruptive CEO in my industry. Stone Age is moving the industrial cleaning industry further and faster than it's ever moved before. And, you know, part of that was, it was, you know, on that cusp of happening. And part of it is us out there pushing it. But I once had someone told me, don't mistake yourself. uh, Don't, don't call yourself disruptive. Some people feel like it's chaotic. (laughs) And I really thought a lot about that because I think that a lot of times you can be taking on too much. Like I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to disrupt myself. But if you don't have focus and that intention and saying, I'm going to get really good at these things in disruption, rather than thinking it's a a shotgun approach, how much more effective it can be. So how do you use focus with this idea of disruption? Yeah. It's a great, it's a great um, point observation, Carrie. So I think, I think, so one of the things you're observing is that question of can there be too much disruption? Yes. And I think we definitely have seen ourselves and we've observed people that they basically start moving up that S curve and they, they're barely moving up and then they're like doing something new. So it becomes this arrest of development. It's just this frenetic started jump started jump. And so you never actually make progress. And so I think one of the challenges is, is that you've got to say to yourself, all right, I'm going to jump to a lot of new S curves and some of them are going to be the wrong S curve. I mean, you could have started ballet and said, eh, not for me. And so you just jump to a new one. And so the question becomes is how do I give myself the latitude to try a lot of S curves, not complete them all. So knowing that no S curve is ever wasted, But once I've made a decision that I want to be on an S curve, am I going to be focused and complete that cycle to be in that launch point of exploring and collecting data and move into the sweet spot of where you're accelerating and you're you're changing and metamorphosing and then you you anchor that behavior. So I would say you explore once you made that decision to commit, then you complete the cycle. Yeah, I think that's a great way to look at it because a lot of times it can feel like we're starting and stopping new things, but really we're just saying, this isn't working, but look at what we've learned from this. And then this is how we're going to then take that learning and apply it to what we're doing next. And, you know, not everybody necessarily sees the, you know, the messiness of what you learned and how you're making that leap to the next S curve. Right. 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 And, and, and the fact is, is that I think if you and I were to reflect and and spend a, a, sort of analyzing our lives, we would find that some of our biggest successes are our S curves that we're most proud of were born in the, the throes of an S curve that did not work. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I can attest to that. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, all right. So a lot of people feel stuck, right? You so you're in that beginning stages and it feels really uncomfortable because you're not good at something. How do you persevere? Like, how do you dig deep and, and get yourself unstuck in those early stages? Yeah. So I think, um, you know, we've, we've kind of been dancing around this and there, there is that awareness. And I, I so I, I have an example that I'll share. So so last December, our family decided that we were going to go on a vacation. And in theory, vacation sounds wonderful. But in practice, vacation is very hard for me because I am going to go to a place that I haven't been. I'm going to do something that I haven't done. I'm going to spend time with people that I may not have spent time with, you know, in terms of the way I do it. So there is a lot of new, I mean, it's completely discombobulating. And so I found myself saying, okay, I've had vacations that have been total bust. I don't want this vacation to be a bust. I want to enjoy this vacation. I want to come home rested. And so when I understood what was going on, I said, okay, I'm jumping to a new S curve. I need to give myself a day or two before the vacation to get ready for the vacation so I can adjust. Then once I'm there, I need to be kind to myself and recognize, oh yeah, I feel uncomfortable and awkward. Oh, right. That's how I'm supposed to feel. And then when the vacation was over, I gave myself another day of re-entry so that I could actually be on the vacation and not be anticipating what was coming back. And so I think the answer is, is that awareness of, oh, this is what's happening. This is a cycle. It makes it a lot easier because then we're feeling discouraged or impatient or we're having fun. Or we're getting to the top and we're like, you know, I know I'm really good at this, but I can't do it anymore because I'm not enjoying it. This is, there's more for me to do on the planet. It's not that we did anything bad. It's not that we don't like our boss. It's not like we don't our company. It's just that we are no longer learning. And so we can then give ourselves permission to do something new. Yeah. I just experienced this very thing today. So I started a grassroots movement in our industry to affect global change around safety practices in industrial cleaning. And I put so much work and effort into it and it has caused some conflict on another board that I sit on, you know, am I creating a competing organization? And as I was having a conversation, the conversation today with the the president of this other organization, I was like, this isn't a battle that I, I want to fight anymore. Like I'm actually feel like my work here is done. I'm a little stagnant anyway. I've been kind of hoping somebody else takes on a leadership role rather than me doing everything. Am I going to fight this battle because I want to win? Or do I use this as a way to say there's something else that I can be doing? And in that moment, when I found myself, okay, like cool, calm and collected, I'm not going to get upset because, um, you know, I'm being accused of something that I'm not doing here and going, you know, this is just, this is, this is the universe telling me it's time for a different S curve Mm -hmm. and getting comfortable with like, my time is done here. And that was in the moment, a really difficult thing to do, but I felt so much better when I said, it's not a battle I'm going to fight. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you were able to just give yourself, oh, okay, got it. And then you can move on. I know. And I wish that so many of of us could do that more often, because I think a lot of us stay stuck in that. um, I'm supposed to do this. And I'm in that comfort zone of the S curve. And do I really want to make that leap? So what advice do you give to people who need to make the leap? Yeah. So one of the things that I do carry when I am at the top of an S curve, which can be like you said, to stop doing something you shouldn't do anymore, you know, and as I 
I scare myself. So here's what I do. We talk about being at the top of an S curve and we think, okay, if you go do something new, it's gonna be so exciting and so wonderful and all these magnificent things are gonna happen. But the fact is, is that most of us aren't actually motivated by that. We're much more motivated by what we lose and by what we gain. Yeah. Plus loss aversion theory, Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman, things had, you have to have 2.2 times the reward in order to do something. So you're thinking, I'm on this S curve, I feel really stagnant, but in order for me to jump, it's gotta be 2.2 times for me to even think it's the same. So I'm not gonna jump. So what I do is I flip it on its head and I say to myself, okay, how can I make staying here losing something? So I'm not focusing on what great thing is gonna to happen to me when I do something new. I focus on what bad thing will happen to me if I don't do something new. So then I realize I, I, I start to stagnate if, if I stay there. And that's actually really helpful. And I'll give you a super simple example because this, this happens a lot. I'll think to myself, okay, I'm gonna get ready to go do a webinar or a podcast or speak. And if I try to psych myself up by like, if I prepare, it's gonna be an amazing speech. That does not motivate me. But if I say to myself, if I don't prepare, I'm going to bomb and I will feel terrible and embarrassed, then that motivates me. And so I prepare. So that's how I think about it. When I know I need to jump, I know I need to do something new. I just focus on what I'll lose if I don't do it rather than what I'll gain. And that tends to be a pretty strong motivator, probably for most of us. Yeah, that's a great example. It totally resonates with me. That's exactly <laughs> what I do. <laughs> All right. So how does this apply to some of the world's biggest problems, right? We have climate change, we have income inequality, racial inequality, unstable governments, failing healthcare, right? The list just goes on and on. Yeah. And to me, it seems like we really need to challenge the way we lead and the way we solve problems. So how do you think leaders can disrupt themselves to actually make a difference in some of these big global issues that we're uh, facing today? Yeah, that's such a great question. So I will share an experience that I have this past year with racial equality. So, so when, when George Floyd was murdered, I had this really sobering moment happen because a number of my colleagues who were black were like just in the depths. And one of my other colleagues said to me, so what are you gonna post on social media about this? And I said, well, nothing. And they looked at me and they're like, you can't not post anything. Like, what, what are you thinking? And this wasn't a PR move. It was a, you're not, you're not, there's not compassion here. Like, what are you thinking? And it was, it was one of those moments where I remember thinking, I am racist. I do. I, I am not seeing everybody that I interact with as equal. And it was such a sobering moment for me where I thought I have to do things differently. I have to educate myself. I have to be committed to racial equality. And so, so to your point about disruption, we think about disruption theoretically as something very exciting and interesting, but the reality of disruption is when you have those moments when one of your colleagues who's, who's, son is biracial because her husband, her, her, the father of her son is black and she is white says to me, Whitney, you realize that your woke moments are causing people who are black a great deal of pain. Yeah. And you have that moment and you say, 
I have to be different. I have to do things differently. And so to answer your question, I think the way that leaders move and change the world is by disrupting ourselves and seeing the world differently and doing things differently in these really micro ways because you aggregate all those micro changes and it starts to be very, very big and significant. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And it starts with each one of us saying, I have to do something differently. And I think that's the key. And, you know, I, we can't just expect other people to do it or think that the problem is too big. I had the same kind of moment with my team saying, how are we going to respond to this? And me saying, you know, I wasn't planning on it. And literally almost the exact same story. And how we wanted to address it is we start at the micro level, right? Everybody has a unique story and we have to see each other as human beings with uniqueness and different viewpoints and different experiences that make, you know, the way that we look at the world different than others. And it is very disruptive. My team is going through some very major, like, like life-changing moments, looking at themselves through the lens of the anti-racism movement. But I love that it goes down to that. You talk about going down to the micro level because it always starts with a person, right? Change always starts with a person and it spreads and spreads and spreads. And so I think that can be an inspiring thing for leaders to do is don't feel like it's too overwhelming. Like you're just one person and can't do it. One small step can make a big difference on the curve to disruption. Right, right. And you get enough of us doing things differently and then you start start to see real, real change. Yeah, I agree with you. All right, let's talk about the micro level. Uh, in one of the podcasts that I listened to you, you talked about informable or I'm sorry, informative or crucible moments. So how do power leaders use the power of these micro disruptions to affect change? Mm. Well, so, so yeah, I I think let's start with this idea. Typically when we talk about disruption, personal disruption, people think it's like change my job, change my career, start a new business. And that is absolutely one type of disruption. But as we have just been alluding to, um, the fact is, is that real change is happening whenever you've changed your career or gotten to a new role, there have been all these micro disruptions along the way that got you to the point that you were there. You started thinking differently. You started reading different things. You started having different conversations. You got up at an earlier time. You decided to um, learn a new skill. So these small things and, and learning of the new skill, like ballet, you probably do a little bit of ballet every day. And then lo and behold, two months later, three months later, oh, I'm getting pretty good at this. And so I, you know, I, am a big fan of, I remember reading Atomic Habits by James Clear and this idea of the cumulative and compounding effect of habits. I'm a big, 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 big proponent of, for example, I have a goal started in March, no March, April, and now May, where every single day I play the piano many days. It is 10 seconds. Sit down at the piano. I play two chords and then I'm done, but I'm building that neural pathway of playing the piano. And so it's whether it's the piano, whether it's ballet, whether it's deciding to smile, whether it's deciding to acknowledge someone on your team, whether it's deciding to, you know, listen to a podcast of someone who is black versus white, whatever it is, those small things, they start to aggregate, they build those neural pathways. And then, you know, we, we change, we're different. 
Yeah. Yeah. I have a, uh, an interesting example of something that just happened that I didn't realize it was a micro disruption in the moment, but I was talking to an employee and she was really frustrated with a person on her team. And I said, well, when, how often do you talk to her? Well, I talk to her once a week. How often do you talk to everybody else on your team? Well, I talk to them every day, you know, they're calling me. Okay. Well, why don't you just say that you're going to call her every day and really make her feel included, right? We all want to know that we're valuable, um, that our work matters and that we're included on a team. And so, and this was probably like six months ago that I had this conversation with her. So she started doing it and she emailed me on Friday and she said, I just want you to know that it has changed everything. And, and this employee told me that she was going to quit until I started reaching out to her every day. This is a manager talking to me and it would have been incredibly painful for the company. It would have been disruptive in an entirely different way. But now we have this engaged employee who's doing more and taking on more and just asked for um, a big project that we want to do. And you, I can already see where this is building. So when I was listening to your podcast on that, I was like, Oh, that is the micro disruption that I'm still seeing take place here because of one little conversation that you have that in the moment didn't seem that meaningful to either one of us. And it's going to have, I think, a pretty significant effect on that employee and the company. Oh, that is so great. So you had that conversation where you disrupted her, how she was thinking about herself. And then she made that commitment to do those micro disruptions, daily phone calls, it's completely trajectory changing. It is a complete trajectory change. I know. And that's why I think what's so powerful about this framework, because if you are intentional about it, you can, you can really do profound things or you're doing profound things and just not paying attention to it. And then don't build, you know, you don't take full advantage of it. So yeah. So that's how, um, so that's how I'm looking at using these kind of like those, you know, informative or crucible moments to say this right here can have a big impact. You don't know, um, what it's going to turn into. So anyway, I love your model. It's awesome. I, use oh, it all the time. <laughs> yeah, I love your, I love your stories. I love how you apply them. It's, oh, it's so interesting. <laughs> well, I'm doing it with my writing my book, right? It's like, okay, I'm, I, I'm going to do those little micro things every day, right? I'm, I need to write at least a hundred words, 25,000 words a week and a hundred words at least a day. And then I have big writing days. And so I'm using that, that those little moments to help me get those big things done. So, you know, there's so many ways that you can apply it. Right. And in a hundred words a day, that's not that overwhelming, right? No, you can totally do that. You can do that like in three minutes if you have exactly. to. Exactly. And then I'm going to tell more stories because I love telling stories. <laughs> oh, love it. So what's your book about? Um, it is, it, it's really about how leaders need to, how we need to challenge the way that we look at leadership. So I weave my story of, you know, I, I basically talked myself out of an overdose, um, when I was 27 years old and packed my life and moved to Durango, not knowing what the hell I was going to do when I got here and happened to be lucky enough to get selected for the general manager position at stone age, even though I was a mess and underqualified. And how I have used that disruptive moment to say, I'm going to change the way that we look at leadership in, in my company, in my industry, in, and hopefully globally. And so we're an employee-owned company, and I'm very big on fixing the income inequality gap. And so I'm just weaving my story into how we need to really challenge the way that we look at leadership and, and change the way that we are addressing some of these problems. Wow. Yeah. 
Fantastic. Yeah. So hopefully, hopefully it's good. I don't know. It's just, uh, you know, I'm writing it for me. And then if it, if it goes anywhere, that's great. But I just feel like this book is in me and it needs to be birthed. <laughs> right. Right. Well, and, 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 you know, never, never overlook the power of good editors. So I think that's the one thing if, if I, if I may, I yeah. think, you know, there's the, their perception that we write a book and it's a solitary effort and it's not. Yeah. I'm learning that. And I'm really, and it actually makes me feel a lot better because it's overwhelming. Mm-hmm. So the woman who I'm working with, who's an editor and my writing coach, she's like, just write. It's going to be what she calls it. Your shitty first draft. That's and, right. and don't worry, we will work magic on it. I'm like, okay, that makes me feel better. <laughs> That's right. Right. A bad first draft. It's the, it's the magic. <laughs> and so you've written several books. Have you always been a writer and what is the writing process like for you? Oh, you know, it's so, what's interesting is I didn't ever think of myself as a writer. I didn't identify as a writer. I suppose at this point, I probably need to identify as a writer, given that I am in the process of writing my fourth book. Um, But in some, at some level, I think it was helpful to not identify as a writer because I didn't put as much pressure on myself Mm -hmm. when I was writing the first book. Um, But the very first one was called Dare, Dream, Do, and this was published in 2012. And it was, you know, it's interesting, oftentimes a first book is very autobiographical. You're telling lots of stories about yourself. And um, I think it's part of that process of maturation for us is, is we're writing that book. But like you said, we, we feel like we have something to say, but we're also trying to find our voice. Yes. And so it was a great process. I mean, it was just a, a thrilling process to go through and get to what I was thinking down on paper. So what I will say, and I'm sure you've heard this already, but any, for anybody listening, writing a book is only half the process. Once you've written the book, you then have to raise the book like a child, right? You have a baby and then you raise the baby. And it's the same with the book. Like you write the book and then you have to figure out a way to get people to actually read the book and market it and put it out in the world. But it's it's a very satisfying process and and, most people don't make very much money on books and that's okay because you still, you still do it. And, and there, it's a great creative endeavor and, and absolutely worthwhile in my experience. Yeah. That's exactly the way that I look at it too. You know, it's going to open up all kinds of doors uh, for other things. And I started, I, you know, my first idea was to not write an autobiographical, you know, or to weave that in. Yeah. And I had this whole different idea, but it wasn't coming naturally. And so I felt the same thing. I was like, I'm going to write lots of books because I do identify as a writer. And it's one of my favorite things to do, but I just have to get my story out and really get the framework of how I think about leadership. And then the other books will come with, you know, much more of a CEO manual CEO, you know, this is how you do these kinds of things. But I was skipping that very important step of finding my voice. So I'm really glad you said that because no one said that to me, but that's exactly what I thought. I was like, I got to just go back to focus on me. And then the next of it will come out with focusing on everyone else. Right. It's a, it, and like I said, I, I read this, you know, much later after I had written the book, I read this, that someone had said, this is a pretty natural evolution for, for first time authors, especially for women, interestingly enough. Yeah. Yeah. I know. We just need to get our stories out to find that voice and organize, organize our ideas. And then the next, the next big thoughts will come. Well, good. Well, I'm so glad we had that conversation. It made me feel a lot better about going back to uh, my personal story. Yeah. One other thing actually I'll share with you that I thought was interesting as well that I remember. And again, I don't remember who wrote it, who read it, but they said, one of the things that happens for women in particular is that 
the first book, it, it tends to be very autobiographical and maybe drawing on stories of other people, but kind of talking from the side and gradually over the course of books, you'll start to come into your voice and speak much more authoritatively. Yeah. And so it'll be fun for you to watch that evolution of how you sort of, here's how I thought and here's how I felt. And over time, you'll allow in your writing yourself to become the expert. And I've certainly seen that evolution for myself in my writing. You're following the S curve on your, with your writing. Yes, I am. Yeah, thank you. I didn't think of that. Great, to, great thing to point out, Carrie. <laughs> uh, well, I've enjoyed all of your books. So, uh, so I read them all before this, uh, before this podcast. So I can see the evolution. Absolutely. And now it's very clear that we're having this conversation, uh, exactly, you know, how that process has worked. So mm-hmm. great. All right. I want to talk about to-do lists because you recently tweeted about to-do lists and I am a to-do list evangelist. I call mine micro achievements. So how do you use a list to make sure that you're working on the things that will help you you either advance up the S curve or get into that disruption framework? Mm. So um, one of the things I do is I I'll think about, for example, like right now, my big goal is getting my next book to the publisher by June 21st. And so that's, you know, six weeks away. And so I make sure my to-do list every single day, except for Sunday, you know, the top of my list, the very first thing I do is I work on the book, right? Yeah. That is what I do. And so I will go through and just think about, so what's my goal for the next six weeks or eight weeks, thinking in sprints, making sure that whatever that thing is, is I'm doing something on that goal that day. And then I'll have three or four things that are essential for me to get done in in a given day, get them done before noon, and then allow myself to just get whatever else done needs to to be done. Now, the other thing that I do do, Carrie, and I just started doing this probably in the last year, is I had a really bad habit of getting very productive. And around noon, I was like, I am so productive. I'm getting so much done. I would add like 10 more things to my list. And then I would end the day feeling bad because I hadn't gotten everything done. And so I have gotten much better at saying, here's my list and I'm sticking to my list. And once I made that decision of those five things I was going to get done that day, then anything else I add is purely optional. And I trust that I will get to it the next day. So that's how I think about lists. Yeah, I love it. I think that's good. I mean, I, I, that's how I'm using my micro achievements as well, because it's those things like, okay, these are the big things I want to achieve the disruptive things. And if I'm not working on these, because I get bogged down with all the other million things that come up from running two companies and, you know, raising a family and supporting an entrepreneur husband, you know, in his endeavors too, it's like, oh my gosh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to move up that curve. And so uh, I think it's really important to, to create that list but not, I I'm with you. I add more stuff to my to-do list too. And then sometimes it's really motivating because I can get it done. But if I don't check everything off, I'm just like, well, that week was a failure. <laughs> yes. It's, a, it's called OCD. Yeah. So, yeah. And so I think if we can do that, then we can allow ourselves to say, okay, I got the five things done that were essential and everything else, if I get it done, great. But if it wasn't important at the beginning of the day, it's probably not important at 4 PM in the afternoon. Yeah, I agree. I agree. All right. So I have two more questions for you before we wrap things up. So the name of this podcast is reflect forward and it means lots of things to lots of people and has special meaning to me. 
Um, what does reflect forward mean to you and how do you think it plays into disruption? Mm. So I'll tell you what came to mind when you said that. I think reflect forward is to think about who I want to be and what I want, how I want to be, you know, a year from now or five years from now and what person do I want to be? And then, you know, thinking of discounted cash flow, like discounting that back to see, am I showing up as that person today? What am I doing today to make sure that I am that person in the future? Yep. So that's what it is for me for reflect forward. And I think um, disruption is, it just means that I'm probably going to have to do something different today. If I want to be um, not probably, I have to do something different today. If I want to be that person in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Great. That's uh, an excellent answer. All right. And if there was one piece of advice that you would give leaders who are looking to be exceptional at what they do, what would it be? Mm. It would be own your strengths. I think very often we're good at things and everybody's good at some things. And because those things that we're good at are so natural and so reflexive, we tend not to value them. We're like, oh, that that's not valuable. I, yeah, whatever, who cares? And then we can't make a big contribution. And so I think what my advice to myself and to you and to anybody who's listening is when you know what you do well and you know what you do well, because everybody tells you, you do it well then make sure that you are leaning into that and owning it. Because if you will own what you do well, then you can make a really significant contribution within your sphere of influence. So own what you do well. I love that answer. We just did a leadership meeting and I made everybody say what they appreciated most about themselves and then say what they appreciated most to the person to the left of them. We were in a big socially distant circle. And it was amazing to watch how uncomfortable it made people to say it, especially we have a 50, 50 female, male uh, executive management team. And almost all of the women had a very hard time saying it, but some of the men did too, but how spot on it was and how well it tied into what other people were giving the same feedback on. And I did it on purpose because so often we don't say I'm really good at this and I'm proud that I'm good at this. And it brings a lot to this team and we should celebrate those things, not be embarrassed or, you know, I mean, obviously humility is very important, but we can, you know, we can, we can not let ourselves shine when we don't say here's my strength and here's what I'm good at. And it does add value to this team. So it was a really great experience. And I'm so glad you said that, gave that answer because I think we need to talk more about, you know, the value that we bring and be proud of it and okay with it and honor it. Yeah. Yeah. Because otherwise you've got all these people running around and they're not, they're actually only vaguely aware of what their superpowers are yeah. and when people own them, then, then you can start to really do some powerful stuff. Yeah. And especially when they're out there for the whole team to see, and you can say, I'm going to leverage her superpower and his superpower to do these things, but you've got to define it and believe it and, and live it. So that's great. Awesome. All right. So how can people find you and your books? Yeah. So I think that one of the easiest ways to find me, well, two things. Number one is if you want that piece that I wrote about the vacation, you can go to whitneyjohnson.com forward slash vacation. It will sign you up for my newsletter, which you can unsubscribe if you want. 
but it's really good. So you won't want to. It is a good newsletter. I love your newsletter. (laughs) Of owning our strengths. So that's one way. And then the other thing is because you're, you've got a lot of podcast listeners, you can go listen to our podcast and you can find it anywhere that you listen to podcasts. It's, it's called disrupt yourself. That's great. And how about your book? Are you in all the major book uh, stores and Amazon? Uh, Yes. Yeah. So disrupt yourself and build an A team or in all, you know, you can buy them anywhere that you buy books. Our next book isn't out until January. So I would, for now, based on the conversation we had today, I'd probably be reading disrupt yourself. Okay, great. And do you have a name that you can share about your new book? Yeah, it's called smart growth, how to grow your people to grow your company. Love it. That's great. All right. Well, Whitney, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show and for sharing all of your insight and knowledge. It was a true pleasure to interview you. Thank you. Oh, thank you. And you're, you're a great interviewer. So thank you for having me. Ah, thank you. All right. Hang tight. And we'll be right back. All right, everybody. I'm back. I hope you enjoyed that interview. I just think the world of Whitney and I, I can't wait to do things with her in the future. And I really appreciated her tips on how to write a book. It was very good. All right. I will let you go for the week and I look forward to hosting you next week. If you like this podcast, please, please, please rate and review on your podcast platform. That is always helpful to podcasters and I appreciate it very much. All right. Have a great day.